Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you can always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God. All right. So we want to welcome everyone back for our next study. We're still actually doing our third study, even though it's our fourth week of the kingdom of God. And we're looking at Luke chapter six. And let me kind of just put it into context, what is going on in Luke six. In many ways, this is Luke's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is kind of the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. He goes up on a mountainside, and he gives the new law, essentially, for the people of Israel. In Luke 6, what you've had happen just prior to this, of course, is that Jesus has been baptized. He's gone off into the wilderness. He's come back and, and appointed his own disciples, his own 12, which you can look at as the new people of God. And he's establishing this new covenant. And then, he esta- and then he goes up on a plane, whatever you might want to call it. It doesn't have to be a Sermon on the Mount, nonetheless. It's a Sermon on the Plain. And he gives essentially the new law. And does anybody remember from last time the, what the passage that we did go through? What is it about the passage that we went through last time, which is what, Luke 6, 20 through? Uh, 40. Yeah, we didn't, read all, we didn't go through all of it in, in the notes, though. Thanks, John. Uh, we yeah. went through 6, 20 through 26. So in Luke 6, 20 through 26, what is it that's in there that reminds us of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy? Anybody remember? Blessed and woes. Yes, very good, Anna. The blessings and the woes. The book of Deuteronomy is the law for the people of Israel. This is the law that you are supposed to follow when you enter the land. You're supposed to bind it on your forehead. You're supposed to teach it to your children. You're supposed to walk this way. You're supposed to choose life by following this. And if you follow it, you're blessed. And here are the blessings, Deuteronomy 27. And if you don't follow it, here are the curses. And the curses essentially are expulsion, expulsion from the land, difficulties with families, the land and family, and obviously eventually being carted away into Assyria and later on into Babylonia. So we noticed this. I remember Cindy noted, pointed, pointed it out last time as we were looking at the passage that there's four blessings and four woes, and the four blessings and four woes seem to parallel one another. So that the first blessing is blessed are those who are poor. And the first woe is woe to you who are rich. And then there's blessed to those who are uh, hungry and woe to those who are well-fed. And clear par- parallel structure between all these. And so, okay, what's, what is kind of Jesus getting at? In order to really understand the cultural context of what's, what Jesus is going to say in the passage that follows, is intensely revolutionary. And it's going to sound like really good Sunday school stuff for most of us, because we've heard this, you know, for many of you, you've heard it many, many years. 
Oh, okay, I you know, love your enemies. Oh, cool, awesome, great thing. You know, nice job, Jesus. That's why we like you, Jesus, because you know you go out on a limb with love your enemies. But the reality is, is he's going to a, a depth and a level that's like, uh, did he really say that? He's not expecting me to do this. It, this is like this is hyperbole, isn't it? I mean, this is he's just exaggerating it. And so the way to understand what's happening is to have a really good grasp of the Roman cultural context. And we've discussed this a little bit before, so some of you might be quite familiar with this. But the first part of the context is honor and shame. So let me just kind of start there, and you know, and most of you know this. Uh, honor and shame. Your goal in an honor and shame culture, and this is honor and shame in a lot of ways similar to what we might find in Oriental cultures today. Uh, you might find it in uh, Middle Eastern cultures today. It's, it's there in every culture. But for those of us in America here listening right now, it's not as prevalent, but it's still there. The goal in an honor and shame culture is to do everything you can to avoid shame. If you can gain honor, that's great. But let's be honest, honor is actually only for the few. And you're just not going to get it. So for the rest of you, you just got to make sure you avoid shame. Now, the way you gain honor and become more honorable, even in your low situation, of course, is to is to get a favor or maybe do a favor from somebody above you. So there's just a lot in, in the Indian culture, you, you have this, this, this caste system and it's just clearly marked levels where by law, it's not legal any longer, but every time I've been there, everyone says it's still here. And it's just, it's just a reality. You don't marry out of your caste. You don't, you just don't move up or down. It just doesn't happen. Whatever caste you're born into is that's what you're born into. But if someone from a higher level, right, a higher part of society, someone with more honor then comes and asks you to do something, you do it because now they kind of owe you something and it shows that you're honorable, essentially. The thing is, however, ultimately, the, the 3% in the Roman culture, in the Roman world, they did not work. They did not labor. They owned the land and they controlled the military. So basically, you worked for them. They tax you because it's their, they, they confiscated the land anyway, so it's their land. They reap the benefit of, of your labor. So you work for them. That's just simply the way it is. They, however, would, they want to make sure that you stay in their, in their good favor. So they would throw banquets for religious banquets and religious festivities regularly, like every couple of weeks, if not once a month. There's, there's just an, a regular religious festivity. And we call it religious, but for them, it's religious and cult. it's just all the, it's for the empire, it's for the religion, it's for the gods. And that might be the only time in the entire month that you would eat meat. And so what they're doing is they're kind of giving you this favor by giving this banquet and this lavish meal. And now you, you labor for them. That's just the way they make sure that you know who you are. And the other thing would be is if there's a famine or some catastrophe where now you're, you're not sure, they might actually provide you with surplus food because guess what? They taxed you more than they needed and they kept the surplus food. So there's always this, this dependency upon them. Now, the problem with that is, is that the poor who can't do anything for you are the ones that you're going to step on to kind of get favor in the eyes of somebody above you. It just simply doesn't work where the people down below, hey, come on with me. But no, because you got to take advantage of this opportunity that you might not ever get again, and you need whatever this guy's providing you with, and you just can't afford to share it with somebody else. And so the poor are disadvantaged in this, in this kind of a system. 
Now, the next element of the system, and I've mentioned this, I think maybe even the last time we met, is the idea of debt and obligation. So in this system of the Roman economy was debt and obligation. And the way that worked was, I do something for you and now you owe me. So you would have 90% of the people that are basically living on a day-to-day basis for food. Maybe 30% of them have food daily and they're okay with it. 30% of them have food daily, but they struggle with it. And then 30% of them have food daily, but it might not be very good and it might not be enough to survive on. So that, that's your 90%, 30, 30, 30. All of them are surviving on a daily basis. So any famine is going to impact that, that 90%. 7% are laborers and merchants that are better off than others. So maybe they own a couple of shipping, a couple of fishing vessels, not just one. So if there's one fishing vessel, they might make a living. But if they own two or three, they're going to do okay. And they're, they're benefiting all right from this. And obviously, the most benefit they get from this is the fact that Rome is consuming large quantities of goods. So everything goes to the shipping lanes, everything gets trafficked to Rome, and Rome's abundant abuse of wealth and prosperity actually is giving you good business. You're prospering off that. Then you have the 3% who simply don't work, they own everything, and they run everything, and that's the, elite, the Roman elite. Now, the way it worked then was I do something for you and now you owe me. So I might have a banquet and I might invite you because you're somewhat honorable and you know, you're probably equal with me. Or if you're below me, it's not by much. It's, it's enough that I'll invite you in. And of course, you remember the parable Jesus says, you know, you guys all choose your own seats where you sit at the table, the most honored seats. That's the way it worked. The person who sits next to the host is the most honored guest and on down the line. And you know your place in that dinner. You know that I'm the last one in. I sit by the door. And if you try to move up and somebody calls you out, you're shamed. What you don't do, is, however, is you don't invite somebody to the dinner that can't pay you back. Because what good does it do you? The, the reason why you invited them to the dinner is twofold. A, they brought honor to you by coming into your home. That's why Jesus is often in these homes. Because he's an esteemed rabbi. They like him. They respect him. The people do. And so we're going to have Jesus. And so I got Jesus coming to my house tonight. And then a woman who's a prostitute comes walking in and she, she washes his feet with her. And if, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he knew he would know that she shouldn't even be here. Right, so th- this is what's going on. It's like, what is she even doing here, Jesus? And she's out of place. She wasn't invited. And do you know who she is? Because we all know who everybody is and their place on the social totem pole. Now, the next thing about that would be that the poor aren't invited because, A, they don't bring you honor, but the poor are also not invited because they can't invite you back. You're not going to have someone over for a dinner that can't afford to have, have a dinner of their own and then honor you by having you invited to, to that dinner also. So it's one of those, hey, I went to Anthony's house this time. Yeah, well, you know, Anthony went to my house, but I'm never going to say that about so-and-so, you know, on the bottom right of my Zoom screen. That's just simply the way the culture worked. And the way it worked actually was, to constantly deride those people, to speak negatively towards those, to make sure that you continue to step on them so that they stay lower on that social totem pole and in their place. Now, it might be that maybe you got a city like, uh, let's say a, a moderate, like Capernaum, and, which is the, the city of Peter's city in Peter's hometown. You know, Ephesus would be a lot larger city. So let's say you got Capernaum. And everyone knows where they are in that totem pole and that social hierarchy within the community. 
And you're born into a family. If that's a prominent family, you're okay. If that's not a prominent family, you're not okay. Now we know, by the way, that Peter and Andrew were fishermen, but so were James and John. But note in Mark 1, James and John's family have hired men working for them. And it may even be that Peter and Andrew worked for James and John. So one family is a little higher than the other family. And this is just kind of the, the, the way it works. A patron is someone who has the resources and they are then needed by a, cli a client. The patron might have resources of like labor or whatever else it might be. And then the client is somebody in higher in, in authority. Now, the way the Roman world worked was this, this system was empire-wide. It wasn't just like a social system within this little community. It was empire. So you start with the emperor at the top of the system, and then you have the elite at the next, not only within every town, but within the entire, entirety of the empire. And in the Roman mindset, maintaining that order was actually vital to maintaining the order of the Roman society and thereby the well-being of Rome. And that's kind of the point I wanted to make. In other words, when Jesus overthrows this or undermines this, he's challenging Rome's way of doing business. And what he's challenging is the gods, because the gods put the emperor in charge. And the gods placed everybody else in their places. And so you honor the gods as part of this whole system to maintain the status of the entirety of the system. So it's not just a social construct. It's not just the shaming and honoring and trying to, you know, trying to get ahead a little bit. It's actually necessary for the peace and security of Rome. Does that, does that make sense a little bit? So we, we talked about then the four um, blessings and four woes. Anybody have any questions on any of those? If somebody wants to read verses 27 through 38 to start with, Luke 6, 27 through 38. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Amen. If only we could do that, right? Yeah. Uh, anything stand out? Well, just as I've said more than once, 
about the Sermon on the Mount. It's just good words to live by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also kind of like opposite of yeah. everything in the honor and shame culture. Yes. Because it's like, okay, I'm just going to give this money to you, and, and I don't care who you are. You need it. Here it is. Right. It's opposite of much of our culture, too. Let's be honest. Well, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of honor and shame on many levels. And that's culture. right. That's right. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I actually caught myself because I see advertisements for some corporations and they're boasting about how much charity work they did. And for me, I was just being, I was being cynical. Like, yeah, I'm glad you're doing all this charity work, but let's be honest, you're only doing the charity work so you can make commercials and tell everybody how much charity work you're doing. And I thought, you know, I probably, shouldn't be so cynical because the reality is they're doing great charity work. Yeah. Let's be honest. They're making commercials and telling everybody about it too, but the reality is they're actually, they're doing it and at least they're doing it. We should applaud them for doing it. So that's kind of the American way, right? Is, is I'm going to do it and then tell everybody about how, what I did so that you'll come to my store and give me more money. It's like, well, that may not be their total motive. You know, let me, I need to cut them some slack and stop being so cynical towards that. So let's certainly not leave out the tax breaks either though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we want to get started with that. So if we were to start with the fact that 20 through 26 describe the kind of people that will inherit the kingdom of God and conscious with the kind of people that won't inherit the, the kingdom of God. This is who's in, this is who's out. And the reality, of course, is that's radically upside down because in the Roman world, the rich were in and the poor were out. Jesus is like, no, the poor are in uh, and the rich are out. And you're like, whoa. And again, always bear in mind that Luke is writing this gospel to one of the, one of the three percent. Very likely that Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, the one who's paying for this letter, is one of the three percent who does not labor, who never has worked a day in his life. Most likely, has never worked a day in his life. Who benefits explicitly and solely off the labor of everyone else. That's who Luke is writing to, and he just said, "What are you who are rich? What are you who are well fed?" And Theophilus like. Dude, that's me. Do you know I'm paying for this book? You know, you better watch out. How you... It's like, and what interestingly is Theophilus wants, I need to understand what this is all about. I, I believe, help me on it. And he's reconciling with his life and implementation of this. And of course, I think most Americans have to reconcile with this as well because we tend to be that, that 3% also in so many ways. All right, so here's who's in, uh, here's who's out. And it's this upside downness, the ones who are actually out in the Roman culture. Then he goes on to say, okay, now let's talk about what the ethic of this kingdom looks like. And obviously the big key theme is that it's love. And I think you've heard me say it before as well, but never hurts to repeat because love is one of those words that I heard a lot when I was in church all those early years of my life that was never just simply defined. And I, I think my conception of love was that I had to like people and be nice to people. And, and the reality is actually, no, you don't have to like someone to love them. You might not like the person who's abusing. You might not like the person who's committing crimes, but but somehow we have to figure out a way to love them. You know, and that's that's an interesting thing in and of itself. But love is defined in scripture. Anybody have an idea, right? What's the epitome of love in the scripture? Laying down your life for the person. Exactly. Yeah, the cross. No greater love is a man than this than one lays down his life for his friends, right? Romans chapter uh, five. And obviously it's the cross. And I mentioned to you last time that the cross is always the center of the kingdom of God. So this is the essence of what love looks like. And by the way, the, the best New Testament passage for this is Philippians 2 that we'll look at 
uh, some of that time, but Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if you want to write that down and kind of refresh yourselves on that passage there. All right, so the key theme then is love, and love is this laying down of your life for, for one another. It begins then, this section begins that John read with four commands. And the fill in the blanks are just kind of obvious. If you just read your Bible, you can figure out what the fill in the blanks are, but that's okay. The idea of that is just writing things down and the processing just helps in the learning process. The first one is love your enemies. Now, by the way, uh, I think John's reading actually began this way. Luke 6, verse 27. I think, John, the first word in your text, I know it is in mine, the New American Standard. I think the first word was but, right? Is that in your translation also? Yeah, but. Correct. So the Greek has two different words for but. And I mean, but as a conjunction, not but as a human part of the body. Uh, there's another word for that. Two conjunctions. One is just, uh, it's just a generic conjunct like and and but. But another one is a strong but. But I say to you, whenever you see but I say to you, you know, it's probably the stronger form of but. And that's the word that's used here. It's this, in Greek, it's Allah and it's but. This is what, you, what you've known and I'm over, overthrowing it. But I say to you. So there's a very strong warrant of exhortation. But I say to you, to you who hear, love your enemies. Uh, the second one is do good to those who hate you. The third one is bless those who curse you. And the fourth one is to pray for those who mistreat you. I don't know about you, but my confession is this. The third one is the one that I can't do very well. I, you know, I can do good to those who hate me sometimes. I'd rather not, but I'm okay with it because that's just what we're supposed to do. And I could like not return curse for curse. I'm okay with that too, even though I want to. That's, but bless? Nah, that's a little bit too much. And of course, First Peter says this, bless those who curse you. Like, yeah, can I just get away with like not cursing today? You know, is that all right? Look, because you know what this person did and I'm just not up to this blessing thing. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I remember someone in our church made a really good comment one, of the, one day, and I haven't forgotten it, that when you pray for someone, you long enough, just keep praying for them. Eventually, your heart towards them turn. You know, when you pray for good for them or something that happened for them or whatever it might be, eventually you start wanting and willing good for them. It, it, and actually, it's, it's really a provocative thought. Love your enemies means lay down your life for them. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat. Anybody have a thought or a comment on those? You know, Rod? Yeah. It uh, really sunk home to me reading the uh, reading this passage that mm. uh, a lot, of, you know, we're, we're told that uh, you're supposed to love love everyone, love your neighbor, and and then all the things you're supposed to do and not do. And I go, I find myself a lot of times thinking that's good. That means I'll be able to do that when I get to heaven and when I spend eternity with God. Uh, I can't do that right now, but I'm saying this is the way we will live. Well, like you said, there's not going to be any cursing in heaven. There's not going right, to right. You know, be any of this other stuff in heaven. So this is meant for me right here. I can do it. Yeah, 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 very good. Maybe the only cursing in heaven is when you first get in there and you're going, you're here? What are you doing here, right? Yeah, and they're probably going, you're here? What are you doing here, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, touche. Yeah, it's very true, right, John? Very true, right? And of course, and we'll get there in, in the study ultimately, but we'll skip to the end now. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. 
not by my, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you want to do this on your own, if at the end of the day, like, okay, you know, at our church in, in Bakersfield, when I was done preaching, I would tell him, I said, listen, if at the end of my sermon, if the message that you, that I conveyed to you was try harder, don't shake my hand on the way out, slap me. If, if, all, if I'm preaching this message of try harder, that's not the gospel. Because try harder by your own ability and power, it's not going to work. You can try all you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's rely more, right? Trust more. And, yeah. and so the reality is if we look at this and go, oh, I don't, mess up, I don't measure up to this, therefore woe is me. Like, okay, no, stop. That's not the point. If you don't measure up to this because you can't measure up to this, therefore rely upon him even more. Right. And, and I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives, who gives me strength. So, um, yep. Very good. Somebody else. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, as you mentioned on the end there, or at least it mentions on the end, pray, even if I find myself really firmly trying to pray for people, but sometimes I realize I don't know how to pray for them, but it's, it's a little bit alleviating. You know, you look at Romans eight, it yes. doesn't matter what I pray from the spirit will intercede. That's right. Will, will utter the words that need to be said. So that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to share real quick. Yeah, please. I I have had a couple times, there's a couple specific people that had come into my life at the time who were like people we knew. One of them was having, nobody's going to know these people not saying names. One was having an affair. Okay. One was a guy who like just was living super ungodly, pornography, mm. smoking weed, all this stuff. Anyways, God called me out multiple times because I realized I had had more conversations about how mm. jacked up these guys were. Mm. I'd never prayed for them. So I just realized that, that it's like, you know, and I'm sure a lot of us are really, you know, can be called out on like, we talk about people a lot, but how often do we actually pray on behalf of these people? Right. Whether it's someone we know mm. or anyways. So when I right. read this, I, God's definitely called me out to, you know, and still, and still does to make sure I'm actually praying for people versus yeah. just talking about them. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So there's four illustrations to start with, or, or sorry, four um, commands. And then the next part has four illustrations and they're fairly straightforward. Again, the fill in the blanks are really easy. The first one is of course, uh, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Now, you've got to remember, you've probably have heard the idea if anyone hits you on the right cheek, they only do things with the right hand. So hitting you on the right cheek means they, they hit a backhanded slap. They, they slapped you in the back. The purpose of that was to shame you. And it was, they're not trying to be physically violent. They're trying to shame you. And the response in an honor and shame culture like this is you must respond in kind. You must defend your honor. You've been shamed. Your goal is to avoid shame at all costs and to defend your honor. And so you shame them back. That's just simply the way it worked. That's why this is so revolutionary. And Jesus is simply saying, look, love doesn't defend one's rights. You know, love kind of accepts the wrong when it happens to you. And in fact, if they do this to you, turn him the other one also. Now, here's an interesting thing about this. Turn him the other one also means let them punch you forehand. Right? Now, that's an act of violent aggression that they don't want to do. They just want to shame you. Now, here's the irony, and I think I'm, we may have alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, but people often go and say, okay, Jesus was a pacifist. The idea of no violence allows violence to happen to you, but doesn't do violence in, respond, in response, doesn't believe in war. A pacifist is maybe not the right term 
because pacifism usually su suggests allowing others to be abusive towards you and just dealing with it. But Jesus was actually being subversive here. The entire passage of, is Jesus saying, I'm presenting an alternative kingdom that undermines the Roman way of doing things. It's not just simply saying, hey, you know what? It's not about your honor. It's about being shamed for the case. No, Rome's way of doing things isn't going to work. Only God's kingdom works. And so this is a radical undermining of the Roman empire and the Roman economy and the Roman religion. The idea of that is if someone slept on the right cheek, what they want and what they need is for you to be shamed. When you turn him the other one, also you're saying it didn't shame me. And if you need to do violence to me, go ahead and do violence to me. That's actually nonviolent resistance and not pacifism. And they are a little bit different. So nonviolent resistance would be a peaceful protest. A pacifist would just be like, you know what? I'm just going to let this foreign empire come into my land and conquer my people and, and enslave us all. That's just the way it is because I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to retaliate. But nonviolent resistance says, I'm going to lock my door. I'm going to bar my windows. I'm going to keep them out of my businesses. I'm going to protest out in the streets. I'm going to use my civil rights. And if they arrest me for using my civil rights, so be it. They look, you know, you watch on the, on the news when people in uh, these countries that are, that are protesting violent regimes, we all know that the violent regime is the violent regime. It's just obvious because they're taking peaceful protesters and you're, you're you know, sometimes older ladies and you're throwing them in the back of a paddy wagon and, and hauling them off to prison. You look the, the fool in this one. So turning him the other one also is actually a means of resisting the empire and the empire's way of doing things. It's actually really an effective way of undermining. So, and I think Jesus is doing the same thing, by the way, when it comes to military and military oppression of the Roman Empire. He, he's not saying, you know, just be a pacifist and let it all go. He's like, no, let's resist this. But let's resist this in a different way. The Jewish world of Jesus' day, prior to, during, and after, especially the 30 years after the death of Jesus, were full of violent protesters. That's why this man named Barabbas, who was a murderer during the insurrection, it says. He committed murder during the, he violently was protesting Roman occupation and he murdered somebody in doing so. But Barabbas is not the man's name. It cannot be a person's name. No one would ever name their son Barabbas. Bar is Aramaic for son of, and Abba, you all know what that is, father. No one names their son, son of a father. You just don't do that. Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, the son of Jonah, right? So Bar-Jonah, maybe, right? But Bartholomew, the son of, of son of Ptolemy, but not Barabbas. Barabbas is a nickname. We don't know where it came into the story, but the early Christians definitely picked up on it because all the gospel writers call him Barabbas. And by the way, there's actually an early, early, early tradition that his name was Jesus. His name, I know it's his real name was Jesus. Bar He's called Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, the son of a father. And the point of that was, is whether his name is Jesus or not, we aren't certain. So we can scratch that if we need to. The, I think the evidence is actually pretty interesting and might be legit. But he's being contrasted with Jesus, the son of God. The son of a father or the son of the father. Who do you want me to release for you? The one who committed murder during the insurrection or the one who's nonviolently resisting the insurrection? Are you a king? Yeah, actually, I, I pretty much am. You're the one even, you're, you said it. Second one then is anyone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. 
Now, in order to understand this one, your coat is your nighttime bedding. It's what you, what you sleep with. It's your uh, bedspread. It's also something you wear during the day if it's cold outside. And you're in this place of, of despair. And so the, the person who's giving the coat is the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized who have nothing left to give and say, I need something for food today and I'll work for you all day long and you can have my coat until the end of the day. And Jesus answers, you know what? Give them your shirt also. And again, note the nonviolent resistance to this because if you, with, if you give them their shirt also, you're walking around naked. Now you might have underwear on, but that's naked in their culture. And who's shamed now? The man who stole my coat and didn't give it back for my collateral, who, who took it unjustly, also has my shirt. Because we want to go, why do you have no shirt on? Oh, so-and-so has it. See, and that coat, you just shame that individual. Number three, a give to everyone who asks of you. Why would I do that? This one makes no sense. The whole purpose of giving to someone is because they owe you. But this person can't pay me back, so there's no way I'm giving to them. And note the point of that is the people, in other words, if you're above me and you ask me, I'm going to do it. If you're above me in the social hierarchy and you ask me for anything, I'm going to do it because I want you in my debt. Anybody that's above me, I, if I get you in my debt, that's awesome. But the point of that is, however, the person who Jesus is saying, no, you need to give to this person also is the person that doesn't have anything. Uh, Jesus is absolutely concerned about the marginalized, the people on the outskirts, the people in the, in the alleyways and the highways and the byways out in the fields who have no one to care for them. But Jesus, they can't pay me back. I don't care. Whoever takes, do not demand it back. If you give this someone and they take it, don't demand it back. But that's the whole point. Jesus says, I need it back and I need it back and some. Now, by the way, remember in the Old Testament law, charging interest was illegal because to charge interest is to take advantage of somebody who's already in a desperate state. You don't take advantage of somebody who's already desperate. Can you imagine what Jesus would be doing today, walking around American department stores who charge 20% interest on credit cards? I mean, 20% interest is exorbitant to the hilt. And he's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. That is criminal, by the way. It, it is absolutely criminal to be done, period, without even bringing Jesus into the equation. But this is exactly what he's doing. He's like, look, don't demand anything back if anyone takes from you. But I need it back. He's like, look, if God so cares for the birds of the air and dresses the lilies of the field, will he not care for you, O men of little faith? Okay, ready? Next. So we had four. Uh, commands, and then we had four illustrations, and then we have a, another command now. And this, this is kind of the central command, and it says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the, the golden rule. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. And you may have heard that the golden rule existed in the ancient world, but always in the negative. This is the first time the golden rule, as far as we know of, has ever been promoted in the positive. In other words, in the negative, it's like, don't do to them what you don't want them to do back to you. But Jesus' answer is no, do to them what you want them to do to you. And the them, well, who's the them? 
it's everyone, right? It, especially the people out in the highways and the byways and the leper and the poor and the, and the widow and the orphan and those in need. And by the way, if you want a really good commentary on this sermon, read the book of James. The book of James, James is the brother of Jesus, but the author of the book of James is the brother, of, not the brother of John, one of the 12, but James, the brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the early Christian church. And if you read John 7 first, you'll notice in John 7, Jesus's brothers say, hey, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show yourself off there? And then it says, because even his own brothers did not believe in him. And what his brothers were doing in John 7 was saying, hey, go to Jerusalem and die. No, no, no prophet hides himself up here in Galilee. Because we know they want to kill you. And just go to Jerusalem and die. And then a few years later, James is writing the book of James. And if you read the book of James and compare it, especially the gospel of Matthew, this guy knew the sermon of Jesus. He's heavily influenced by the teachings of Jesus. So uh, a good commentary on the, on the gospel of Matthew and Luke and this particular part of the gospels is the book of James. Three negative examples now, right? And we'll kind of roll through these. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? But that's the way it works. By the way, that's the way it works in our society too. We love those who love us. We don't so much those who don't love us. And we do this, in our, you know, for those of you in the corporate business world, right? You love those who can get you the promotion. And the one who's trying to take that promotion from you, you might need to step on them a little bit to make sure that you get the promotion and not them. So you're going to speak behind their back. So I read this quote last time. That's from Second Clement. And Clement is the Bishop of Rome. Again, it's difficult to know if this is the same Clement or not. Second Clement chapter 13, verse four says, when they hear from us that God says, and he's going to quote Jesus, quote, it's no credit to you if you love those that love you, but it is credit to you that if you love your enemies and, that, and those who hate you, end quote. He says, when they hear this, they wonder at this extraordinary goodness. But when they see that we not only don't love those who hate us, but we don't even love those who love us, they laugh at us in scorn. And the name of Christ is blasphemed. So what's interesting about that, and I was kind of good comforting to know is, hey, folks, church ain't changed, right? <laughs> 2,000 years later, we still got the same problems. We do it. Our congregations do it. Our communities do it. Yeah, but there's something about saying, yeah, but I'm no longer going to be content with that. Saying this is just the way we all do it. No, I just can't do it any longer. We have to figure out how to have this, this different, when they see us, they go, Hey, if that's what a Christian is all about, oh, maybe I'm interested in finding out more. Uh, the second fill in the blank uh, on the, of the three illustrations is do good to those who do good to you. Uh, if you do good only to those who do good to you, what reward, is, what reward do you have? And then the third one is lend, if you lend to only those who are expecting a return. And that's the same point that we made earlier. Why would you do that? That one absolutely doesn't make sense at all. You only lend because now they're in your debt. But note, of course, you don't have a problem lending to the, to the wealthy. And if it's, if you're middle-class, there isn't really a middle-class, but let's say you're up there, you're going to, you're absolutely going to lend to somebody in that class because they're in your debt. Now, the person you don't want to lend to is the poor who cannot afford to pay you back. You don't lend to them because you're not going to get it back. And she's like, no, give to them too. What are you talking about? Jesus. Right, and this obviously has a lot to say about the fact that the kingdom is for everyone, or maybe we say, Everyone who repents. Then we have this summary. 
And the summary command is, well, this is kind of what God's like. Love your enemies, verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend and expect nothing in return. The result? Well, your, your reward will be great. And you'll be called sons, and maybe modern day translation will be sons and daughters, of the Most High. Now, you have to understand what the word son of meant. Remember, this is a culture where Peter was known as Simon Bar-Jonah. I don't know if you know any, anybody like this, Anthony, or not, but in, in the Middle Eastern culture, their name is so-and-so's father. Abu, I'm the father of so-and-so. That's my son. The pride of the family is in the son or in that child. And it's usually the, the oldest son. Sorry about that, but it's still patriarchal. But this is the nature of the culture. To be a son of means to have the attributes or character of that person or being. That's why when Jesus says, or John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers. He's saying, son, you're sons of the serpent or serpents. Jesus says, your son, you guys are all sons of the devil. We're children of Abraham. Just like if you're children of Abraham, then do the deeds of Abraham. Because to be a son of is to be characterized by that which uh, you're the son of. You do what that, what that is. If you do this, your reward will be great. And note, your reward will be great, meaning in eternity, not necessarily in the here and now. And you'll be called sons of the Most High, because that's what God does. So the point of that is that God is the model. And note what he says now, because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as God is merciful. Wow. Yeah. Remember I told you this was going to be harsh. This is going to be, this is going to be, this is going to be a lot to chew on. I got a question. Yeah, please. That, that brood of vipers part. I mean, there's a tension there because is yeah. he calling them out on a spiritual realm or is he calling out their humanistic nature? That's predisposing them to that kind of outlook. I think John the Baptist is calling them out as sinners. Let's use modern American Western theological categories. And it's hard to do because we don't know what his category was. The modern Western theological category will be you're a sinner because it refers back to the garden, right? With the serpent and you did what the serpent commanded you to do. You're, therefore you're sinners. On a, probably on a deeper, more fundamental level, he's saying you're truly human because it's what humans do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you, and therefore you need to, the whole point of it is you need to repent because their answer is we don't need to repent. Because we're sons of Abraham. And John, so John the Baptist like cuts that off at the at, at, chops that off at the knees and says, because he even says in the same path, I think it's Luke chapter three, he says, Don't say we have Abraham as our father. There you go. We are sons of Abraham. And obviously Jesus goes on to say, if you're sons of Abraham, do the deeds of Abraham. He says, No, you're brood of vipers, because you're you're human. And obviously, Abraham is characterized as this righteous person, right? You know, he believed God and reckoned him as righteousness. So you, you're not you're, you're sons of Adam, not Abraham. I think that's what he's getting at. Okay. I got a question. Yeah, please. I understand the do good lend and, and expect nothing in return. But where I've got a problem is then you've got the command who, or whoever takes, do not demand it back. Couldn't, couldn't you say like whoever steals from you, don't demand it back. Uh, it's not talking about stealing. I don't, I don't think that's the context. Yeah. Well, that's I, the way I, I interpret it. I think the context is the socioeconomic context of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized not having any advantage in society at all. They're totally dependent upon the others. And the others will only do for them as you do back for me. 
And Jesus is saying, no, just do good to them and help bring up their, remember Deuteronomy 15 is the key here. Deuteronomy 15 says, there shall be no poor among you. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I blogged on this a, a while back because the irony is that people quote Deuteronomy 15 this, where Jesus quotes it and says, the poor you will always have. That's actually Deuteronomy 15 also. The poor you will always have. And the problem with that is, is you can't take that one verse out of isolation from the whole context because that's just the way that a Jewish person, when they quote scripture, they'll quote a part of the scripture and the whole passage is in mind. So the part that he quotes is, the poor you will always have. The whole scripture, however, says, but it's not supposed to be that way. Because you shall have no poor, I think it's Jeremy 15, verse four. You shall have no poor among you. And so just like, let's alleviate that. And of course, by the way, maybe we can also point out the way to see this in play is read the book of Acts, the first four, five, six chapters. This is exactly what the early church was doing. Those who had land, not, they didn't sell all their land, but those who had land were selling it and giving some of the possessions to the church to say, you don't have, and I have enough, more than enough here. And let's bring everybody up to this level of equality. And again, within the church, some people are like, I don't like this because I think you're talking about communism or socialism. I'm not speaking about any economic policy of any secular state in the world at all. I'm talking about how the economy of the church is to work and how the economy of the church functions. And, and if it does it have implications on society, well, maybe so, but don't say it's socialism because that's a secular philosophy. And this isn't social. This isn't a secular philosophy. And don't say it's communism because that's a secular philosophy as well. It's not capitalism, but that's a secular philosophy. It's none of the above. In your society, whether it's communism, socialism, or capitalism, this is how you behave, which is contrary to that system. So does that make sense? Yeah, I'm still having trouble with somebody that comes and takes it or steals it. Yeah, the right to defend property is a biblical right and a necessary right because, again, uh, it's a criminal act. And as Mm -hmm. a criminal act, it should be punished criminally because the person might take advantage of somebody else also, and maybe even somebody else who doesn't have. The old Robin Hood theme, right, where Robin Hood's this great guy. Well, no, Robin Hood's a criminal. Now, we, we get it because the people he's stealing from, they're criminals too, but Robin Hood's a criminal. And we need to reckon with that. He, he's still a criminal. He's not, he's not doing it Jesus's way. Jesus doesn't say go steal from him. So I think we would look at the biblical law and say, hey, the law does allow for self-defense and it does allow for preservation of property. And this person's violating that. So yeah, you lock your doors at night. It does, Jesus isn't saying leave your doors unlocked. If they come in, you know, hey, talk, the fridge is open, you know. Make yourself at home. He's not saying that at all. Uh, he's saying, if they have needs, then find a way to help meet their needs by, by lending to them. Now, in, the, in that world, by the way, also know, if you're without land and you're without children, one or both, you have no means of sustenance. You, you are stuck. You are totally dependent upon the other. So if you have no land, you have to work for somebody. And now Jesus is like, look, help that person. And that's why even the biblical law says, restore their land to them. You you can't ever take their land in perpetuity. You can never take land and not give it back. It has to go back to them because that's the only way they can have long-term economic viability. These are the contexts here, but we're not, I don't think we're talking about stealing at all. Would the context be more like receiving you're you're giving and if they receive you don't expect them to give it back Mm -hmm. Uh, yes 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 it is exactly anybody else you know it seems like uh 
in the Jewish first century that it was like about the society and the social well-being of all. And not that they didn't have problems, but everybody, uh, I, I, that's wrongly said, that's how God intended it. And Jewish first century seemed to have more of a collective understanding of this, of the community. And in America, we seem to like, if I can get something. Right. And now, you know, there's plenty of people who are like, totally so generous. It's mm -hmm. not even funny. But I, I think we still have an individualist. I, yep. I will do this. And even my family telling me to do something is like, forget it. Yep. You know, I'm not going to do that just because so-and-so, my aunt told me to. That, that's right. You're absolutely hitting on something that I think we're going to be doing some podcasts on this. So I'll be blogging on this a little bit as well in the beginning of next year. That is a major distinction between the biblical world and our, and our Western culture, but it's also a big distinction between our Western culture and non-Western cultures. Yeah. Though I get the idea of the fact that, yeah, you're called to accept Jesus as your personal savior. I get that. And that's why I consider myself an evangelical in that sense. But we do undermine the collective family. And by the way, my, one of my blogs that will come up in early January is on communion and the church as this whole, as this, as this end, we are one, this one body, and we are the body of Christ. There are then four exhortations on judgment at the end of this passage now. The first one is don't judge or you'll be judged. Now, this one's been highly abused in Christian churches for a long, long, long time. And it's, it's used as a weapon. And the answer is, if I'm doing something wrong and you try to call me on it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote this verse at you. And that's not the context. You know, 1 Corinthians 5, you, you've got this, this man as his father's wife and you're proud. Like, yeah, expel the wicked brother from among you. Even in Matthew chapter 7, when, when this passage is quoted in Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. He says, first take the speck out of your own eye, the log out of your own eye, and then you can see the clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying look at the log in your own first. Right, so the context here, though, is judging to discern who's worthy of grace and who's not worthy of grace. That's the way the Roman world, I always think about this in the context of the Roman hierarchy of systems. You judge every single moment of every single day. In their culture, you're judged based upon what you're wearing. You wear clothes to let people know where you are on the social status. status. That's simply the way it works. Beware the Pharisees who like to walk around in long flowing robes. That's a status. That's, I want you to judge and know where I am and that you're not where I am. You're below me. This is the system. And the idea of judging here is to determine who's worthy and who's not worthy. That goes back to the John the Baptist. You brood of vipers. You think you're worthy of the kingdom. You think you're sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil, John chapter eight. You're, you're, you're a brood of vipers, Luke chapter three. You are in need of repentance also. So it's, it's, it's not only this, hey, you guys are failing to recognize your own need for repentance, but the fact that you also are judging that other person as to whether or not I will give or not give, whether or not I will love or not. You love those who love you, but you don't love those who don't. No, you, whether, am I going to love you or am I not going to love you? All these are judgments that Jesus is saying, no, you can't do those. 
Don't judge to decide who's worthy and who's not worthy. Next, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Same idea. Who's doing the condemning? The one up here. Who's the one being condemned? The one down here. And of course, Jesus' kingdom is this upside down kingdom. The one down here is actually up there. And so not a good idea. Don't condemn and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and or pardon and you'll be forgiven. And again, this is one of those, well, I can't forgive because they shamed me. I can't forgive because they did this to me. And it brought me down on the social status. Now, again, this is not to be used of saying, okay, you have, and this happens in way too many American churches. You wife just have to be Jesus and accept the abuse that your husband's giving you because he's the head of the household. Not at all. That's abuse. And think about it. the person that's being abused is socially lower. Everything about this speech of, or sermon of Jesus is saying, the person is socially lower, I'm elevating them up. And I'm putting them above everybody else. Woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are poor. I've changed the tables. And so for us to use this and say, you know, your, your lot in life, you have to, that's your suffering. That, that's the cross you have to bear. And I've seen this way too much in literature. I've seen this way too much in practice. That is done, folks, in churches where women are held in abusive relationships because that's what's supposed to happen because that's just the cross you have to bear. But you have to love your husband. No, not, not at all the context of what's going on. So does that make sense? How Once we understand the context of what Jesus is saying is, then we can put these passages into, into play and go, okay, it's not saying that and it is saying that. Uh, give, verse 38, and it'll be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they'll pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. What he's talking about is economic fairness. He's saying, be fair and economic. Maybe a, a modern day application of this is, if you own a business, pay your workers what they deserve. Not, see, in, in our economy, it's pay your workers as little as you can get away with. And then if they decide they're going to leave you because they found another job, maybe you can offer them a raise if you want to keep them. No, give them the raise to begin with. If you can afford it and they're worthy of it, give it to them now. The idea was that in, in the marketplace, you would buy a measure of grain. Let's just say a gallon of grain or, or a liter of grain. If you just pour it in, well, if you shake it up, it settles, right? And then you pour more in. If you don't shake it up, I've actually cheated you a little bit because it didn't settle. And this is the measure I'm using to decide how much grain I'm going to give you. Just like, no, shake it up, press it down and pour more in until it's overflowing. The point of that is the person who's got the goods now, I'm willing to, be, to take a loss on this because I know I could sell it to you for less grain and have a little bit more for myself at the end of the day and maybe sell more, make more money. I'm not doing that. I'm going to give to you what I said I would give to you. This much money for this much grain that's exactly what I'm giving to you. And I'm going to make sure you get that. All right. Now we begin to go, okay, now I understand. And we, we see A, how this has been abused in the church, right? Don't judge and all those things there. And then B, we go, oh, Jesus is being revolutionary by giving, I mean, this wouldn't apply. This, this wouldn't work if this were uh, an economic system employed by a country, right? We, by the way, all economic systems employed by every nation in the world don't work because they all have sinners in it. Capitalism just leads to greed. Communism just leads to apathy. 
and so, and we all know, obviously there's benefits of, of capitalism because we get better medicines and not, okay, cool. But it does lead to greed and abuse. I'll say this and uh, maybe you won't like it, but somebody making $350 billion is immoral. No one should have that much profit off somebody else's labor. That's immoral. Now I'm not denying the fact that you own the business and you're taking the risks and you have a right to make some, okay, what a, I know people who do advocate you, you have no right to profit off somebody else's labor. You can benefit, but not profit. Okay. But profiting to the extent of hundreds and hundreds of billions is immoral. I think we can take it that far. But again, you can't necessarily take this and say, oh, Luke is or Rob is advocating for some economic societal thing that we vote. I'm not saying that at all. We need to do this ourselves within our own lives first, within our own household households first, and then within our own church communities first. And then we figure out how this applies in the nation. And we're not even there yet. The rest of the passage that we, we read all the way through last time has three parables that say, you better listen to what I say. And that is, you're going to learn from your teachers. So be careful who your teachers are. It speaks to the significance of teachers in the book of James, right? Do not presume to be teachers, my brothers. It speaks to the gravity of being a pastor and of being in spiritual leadership. And it also says, be careful about who you are, who we're following. The blind cannot lead the blind, can they? Any questions, comments, or thoughts? Uh, if you get a chance to read Luke 16, the first parable at the beginning of the chapter, I think it's verses one through nine or 10. Some of you might remember our teaching on it. Some of you, it might not make any sense at all. I probably have a podcast on it. So if you look up on the Determined Truth podcast, you can probably find it there in case I don't discuss it. But notice the parable of Luke 16, one through nine, then leads to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the middle of that chapter. Now, the rich man and Lazarus, you can read today without a problem in light of what we just discussed uh, tonight and, of course, two weeks ago. So if you discuss, look at what we just discussed tonight in the last two weeks and then go read the rich man and Lazarus, you're like, okay, totally get it. Yeah, you who are poor now, you who are well-fed now, oh, it's reversed, bummer for you. That's just the way it is. But earlier than that, there's a parable in Luke 16 that actually, I think, highlights this point too, and it's very difficult. It's a very, very difficult parable. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.